Milwaukee, May 28th, 1981. 30-year-old Christine Schultz is brutally murdered by a home intruder with her two small children also inside. After a three-week investigation, police make an arrest in the murder, catapulting the case into what would become one of the most prominent trials in American true crime history. Lorencia Bembenic, the 22-year-old newlywed wife of Christine's ex-husband, a Milwaukee police detective, is soon tried and convicted of the home intrusion and murder. But after several appeals, the former model eventually escapes from prison under much fanfare, as many believe she was actually framed for the murder by her former employer, the Milwaukee Police Department. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, And thank you for tuning in, everybody, to this episode 17 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, your other host, Mickey Sanders. That's me. That is you, and we are going to head right into it. I hope your Christmas goes wonderful, open lots of presents, and as you do so, listen to the exciting conclusion (laughs) of Run Bambi Run. So now after the trial, soon after the trial, Fred, who had had stuck by Lori through the whole, as Mickey had mentioned before, stuck by Lori through the whole trial, uh, vouched for her innocence, uh, changes his tune after she was convicted. Soon afterwards, Fred filed for divorce and moved to Florida. He wrote her a basically a John Deere letter uh, saying that he was living with a 19-year-old woman, and he basically said goodbye and good luck. Very sweet. Hallmark moment, huh? The divorce was granted on June 19, 1984. For all accounts at that point, he remarried that 19-year-old, or he married that 19-year-old, and he started his own carpentry business, but basically out of Lori's life forever. He also had to resign from the police force after he found out he was under investigation from all the perjuries. Sure. That he had. That's why he left the state altogether. And he later went on to say that he believed Lori Bambenek was, quote, guilty as sin period, unquote, after defending her throughout the trial. So everything about him changed once he, she was convicted. He was uh, flying the coop after that. So he abandoned her, right? So she feels alone. She writes um, that she was suicidal several times while she was in prison, and who wouldn't be in her circumstance? If she did it, she thought she was going to get away with it, right? And she didn't. Now she's in her 20s. She's in the clink. She's going to be there her entire life. I would probably be suicidal too. But she did have one person who did not abandon her. That's a private detective who basically made it his calling to help her because he believed that she was innocent. His name was Ira Robbins. Now eventually, because of the work that Robbins did, a lot of information would come out after the trial that the jury never heard, which was about to turn this case completely upside down. Namely, the testimony of one Judy Zess. Again, the testimony of Judy Zess is called into question. 
because a few years after the trial, she recanted her testimony. All of it. She lied about the green jacket. She lied about the green jogging suit. She lied about the clothesline. She lied about the statements Lori supposedly made about wanting to kill Christine. All of it. She said that she provided that testimony, quote, under duress, unquote, insinuating that it was coerced. And obviously, coerced testimony is something that we've talked about quite a bit on this show. Not only on this show, but pertaining to Milwaukee. Two of what was later found out to be victims of Walter Ellis were pinned on other people due specifically to coerced testimony in which those imprisoned actually won millions of dollars in the lawsuits. So it was happening then. Coerced testimony is a real thing. And she says, Judy says her her testimony was... Like she was brainwashed. Judy Zess also admitted to owning the wig that was found in the septic pipes in the apartment building. Now remember, they had shared pipes. And the neighbor called as their toilet was clogged. This neighbor woman would tell police in her report or report that was taken that Zess actually knocked on her door asking to use her bathroom. Kind of strange from out of nowhere. After she did, the plumbing was clogged. Zess did admit she owned a brownish red wig, as Scott mentioned, and this all makes it appear Zess was also in on the framing of Ben Benick. So it's not only Judy Zess. So the police knew this. I said also in on. So the police knew this on June 15th of 1981, two weeks after the murder. Two weeks after the murder, they knew that Judy Zess went into the neighbor's bathroom and flushed that wig down the toilet. So, you know, maybe I'm missing something here. I don't know. But is that not suppression of evidence? They knew the wig was a plant. 100%. Right. 100%, and they still pinned it on Lori. They knew this two weeks after the murder that Judy Zess planted the wig in the septic tanks, and the jury never heard it. And furthermore, with some of this just questionable circumstantial evidence, they they said that there were no tears in in Christine's underwear, meaning there was probably not rape. They speculated it to be a robbery. Her purse was found in plain sight with $53 and uncashed checks in it. So if it's a robbery, they weren't going for money, evidently. Things were moved around, but not much missing. And there was a safe in the den, what they called, they called this den the, the music appreciation room, where Christine kept her bookkeeping supplies and found open with a metal box laying out of this safe. It was speculated that the murderer knew the combination or had Christine open the safe before they fled. Contents of the box or anything else were never discovered. Awfully telling information. So now what about the wig shop owner? Remember her? She's adamant that Lori came in and purchased a wig. Right. And she knows it was Lori because she her name's on the check. definitely used a check. Lori Bimbenek never had a checking account. She's 22 years old. She had no money. I didn't have a checking right. account at 22. Right, and you had parents that were helping you pay for stuff she had no checking account this is easily verifiable stuff that they never looked into anybody can write a check with somebody else's name on it but yet you you put the wig shop owner on the stand and say Lori ben bennett came into my shop and bought that wig with a with a check and you never say what she does she look like a checking account well and what does she look like none of that was ever brought up people suck So, you know, because of this, Lori, all this comes out after the trial, okay? That's a big deal. The jury never heard any of this stuff. And there's a lot more coming, too, right? So because of this, she files three different times. She she files appeals, wanting a new trial. Obviously, remember we talked about the Avery case in the beginning of this episode because he's done the same things. I feel these are different circumstances, as I said at that time. Lori has now filed three different times based on this new evidence that the jury never heard. She's denied all three times. Why? Half the evidence that was used to convict her we now know is bullshit. That doesn't warrant a new trial. And But Lori does not go away, right? She never stops maintaining her innocence. She gave numerous interviews to media outlets. Obviously, she wants to keep her story alive. She wants to keep the public involved. 
She actually went to college when she was in prison. She got a bachelor's degree from UW Parkside. She founded a prison newspaper. She became somewhat of an activist, right? right. She'd be raising hell when she'd see things that were unlawful or in, in against protocol, and she would demand change. She's kind of doing what she did when she was on the force, right? And She's, she also met a man. She also met a man. She was a very, as you can imagine, popular prison inmate. She received lots of fan mail. Right. right, just like Jeffrey Dahmer does. Yep. So she gets lots of fan mail, um, but she would eventually see the brother of another inmate when he would come and visit her. A Milwaukee factory worker of her cellmate. So Lori asked about him, and they would meet, and they would start writing letters to each other, and before you knew it, they're engaged to be married. Dominic Gugliato. Dominic Gugliato. The brother of her cellmate and a Milwaukee factory worker. And, and now his sister, her cellmate, was, I think she was in for passing bad checks or something. And I mean, it was something. It's ironic. It's pretty, pretty small. And she was not in there very long. But, it, you know, in, in any event, uh, her and Gugliato um, devised a plan to get her out of there. She felt that there was nothing else she could do. She had no other options, right? Her appeals are denied. And if they're going to continue to deny her appeals... When half the evidence used against her is complete bullshit, where do you turn? What do you do? And and speaking of that, this good so-called good friend, Judy Zest, during these appeal processes, Judy made a statement in an interview with investigators basically saying she knew who killed Christine Schultz. And, and if you knew what she knew, it would blow your mind, quote unquote. So there's all kinds of cover-up going with all these people that Lori thought she could trust, so she's basically got nobody. So in her mind, she can do the only thing that she, the only option she has left, and that's try, try to get out of that maximum security prison, right? So they devise a plan. You know, I, I've read a lot that this was kind of an on the whim thing. It couldn't have been. He was waiting for her. Right. This was devised. This was planned out. So she goes, and on, on July 5th, 1990, she goes to work in the laundry room in the prison. She knew that that would buy her some time because she knew that the guards would not come into the laundry room and they would just wait for you until your shift was over. They didn't believe, once you're in that laundry room, where are you going, right? Well, I'll tell you where they're going. There's a window in that laundry room that apparently nobody thought about. Just an, just another side note. This is eight years, four months, and five days into her life sentence. Right. So it, she's been there a while. She's feeling frustrated and like her appeals are never working, so she's just desperate. So she gets out the window. It's not secured. She's small enough that she can fit through. And, I, you know, again, this was planned. She probably tried that window before. She knew it was going to be open. She knew she could fit through it. So uh, maybe maximum security to Cheetah needs to, needs to figure that out a little bit more. Well, I'm sure they might have after that. Happened. Probably. They probably cell blocked it up. She also had to scale the barbed wire fence, which sounds a little bit painful, but... It doesn't sound like the toughest escape in the world. So she gets out the window, she runs across the prison yard, and she comes right, she comes to the fence that's got a, a barbed wire top. But she brings a, a, a belt with her, and she wraps the belt around the barbed wire and basically just pulls it down, right. scales the fence, and climbs over, and hops, easy. hops right into the waiting truck of Mr. Dominic Gugliato. And off to Canada they go. They were spotted two days later, technically, in a truck in Wauwatosa, as Scott mentioned. But this abandoned truck was found in a parking lot of a nearby Target soon after. So they're on the road, right? They're heading up to Canada, and the media loves it. This puts her back in the limelight. This puts this story back uh, on the front pages. The Playboy Bunny, former cop turned killer. It's a sensational story. The media loves it. And she becomes a folk hero. And this is where the term Run Bambi Run starts to show its face. It was a song written about her called Run Bambi Run. There were t-shirts being sold saying Run Bambi Run. So this People were mystified by the whole situation. So she is now uh, a folk hero. People are rooting for her. Not everybody. Obviously, there are, there are people that still believe she, she was convicted. Her appeals were denied. There are people at this time, including the family of Christine Schultz, which... You always have to think about, including her children. She is the victim here, the main victim, the murder victim. They still believe she's she's guilty, and why wouldn't you? They just want somebody to be held responsible for her death. Well, and everything they're told by the prosecution, of course, she sounds like the, the one who did it. And now know? she's running. Right. 
So that's that's she's no folk hero to them. Right. Now she's on the run with Dominic, and they get into Canada, and they actually get stopped at the border by the Mounties, and they ask what they're doing in Canada, and Bambi just says that they're celebrating their honeymoon, and they let them right through. Sure. Things are a little different now right? than they were back then. You can't get into Canada if you have a DWI no, on your record. You're you turned right back. So right. just tell them you're on your you honeymoon. have a permit for that, yeah. And, uh, and you're on your way to Thunder Bay. So they get fake names. They get fake IDs. They both get jobs in Thunder Bay. They get an apartment. Her name was Jennifer Gazana. That's what she chose. And she actually found work once again as a waitress and a fitness trainer. So she's working in a diner in Thunder Bay. Not the, not the Playboy Club this time. Not the Playboy Club. They probably those are probably already done by nineteen ninety so, or so. Yeah. I think they were especially in Canada. They, they have, have a little different years. ethical code yeah. than we do. So she's working at a little diner, and and they're for what for two two and a half months or so. They're they're living it up. They're they're free. They've tasted freedom. They're now um, Jennifer Gazzano, and who knows what Dominic's name was, but he he, he would. He went and looked at death certificates from babies that died the same day they were born, and he he stole their names. That's where the names came and from. And that's where they got their fake names and their fake IDs. And as Scott mentioned, a week afterwards, over 200 supporters flooded the Milwaukee, a Milwaukee park. People were wearing masks of her face so that, quote, she'll be able to walk around more freely. This is kind of, quote, unquote, this is the mentality of these people. And they were also wearing T-shirts that said "Run, Bambi, Run." They were very. She had a lot of support. Now, unfortunately for them, their 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 little tryst in Thunder Bay didn't last very long. An American tourist in Thunder Bay had recognized her from America's Most Wanted, huh. and they were arrested again in October of 1990. They didn't get too far. Only about three months total. Now. Nick was immediately extradited back to Wisconsin. We're calling him Nick now? Dominic. Oh. She called him Nick. I was going to say, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know we were that we're friendly buddies. with the guy. Yeah, sure. We're, we're, sure. We're, we're boys. He was deported back to the U.S. and eventually sentenced to one year in prison for his role in the escape. The thing is, soon after this, they ended up never speaking to each other again. Right. He was a, he was a pawn. Yep. She was using him. He was, he was a toy. Right. Now, Lori, in, in, a, in a pretty smart, but Lori was not naive. Lori was no dummy. And she knew the system. Um, in, a, in a pretty smart move, she files for refugee status. Now, in Canada, when you claim refugee status, you have to have a hearing within 48 hours of your arrest. It's law. And there's nothing you can do to deny it. So this is happening quick. And she meets with two lawyers, two pretty young lawyers, who she presents her case to. She gets to them. They believe her. And they take her case on for free. That she was framed in, by a corrupt Milwaukee police department. Now, at this time, I don't believe it has ever happened. I don't believe an American had ever successfully claimed refugee status based on persecution. So her lawyers get her an expert in Canadian immigration law, one of the top lawyers in the country, Frank Morocco, who's known as Canada's F. Lee Bailey. Depending on how old you are, you remember F. Lee Bailey. Um, he was kind of the defense lawyer to the stars, maybe, in the 80s and 90s. He was a big part of the, of the O.J. Simpson trial. He was known as Canada's F. Lee Bailey, and he agreed to take on the case pro bono. Now, he argued that Lori was not able to obtain a retrial in America despite mounting seemingly exculpatory evidence. Now, according to him, that rings of persecution, as defined by the Geneva Convention. Canadian courts agreed and allowed her status claims to proceed to hearings. Now, as I said at this time, no American citizen had ever successfully argued for refugee status on the basis of persecution before. People in America aren't persecuted, right? right. I mean, in, in theory, we have a Bill of Rights. So if we have a Bill of Rights in a Constitution, how can you... We're innocent or until proven that, guilty. Right? Right. How, can, how can a country find you in persecution? It has happened since... But as I said, it's almost impossible that countries uh, grant that. So at this time, this is this is quite a swing for the fences for her. It's never been done before. But she, along with her lawyer, gyms up this plan. She's desperate. And there's there's basically no precedent for it. As we said, it's never happened. Um, but what this really did 
because the clan, the, the media, this again, this was in the media again, all over the place. Now it's in two countries. So Frank Morocco is going to call witnesses to prove she was set up by the Milwaukee PD for a murder she didn't commit. He believed her. And what this did is it gave her a chance to relitigate this case. She's getting her retrial in the court of public opinion. It was a genius move. Whether she, whether this was her plan or Frank Morocco's or Ira Robbins, whoever did this, it was a desperate plan. You're right. But it's the only thing that made any sense at that, that point that worked for her. So now, little by little, every hearing is not taking place in some closed court in America. It's taking place in Canada, and all this stuff is blown out to the public. All of these things come out, and the public hears about it. The testimony from Judy Zess, bullshit, right? Frank files a 91-page report with the courts blowing apart the Milwaukee prosecutor's case, and, and it's all based on the work of Ira Robbins. So Frank Morocco was able to put this out to the world. So the green jogging suit was gone. The statements Laurie supposedly made about killing Christine are gone. The wig was gone. The clothesline was gone. No record of blonde hair anywhere. Well, what, let, let's look at that. What about the blonde hair? So the medical examiner had something to say about that blonde hair. And again, all of this was found by Ira Robbins after the trial. We're talking two, three years after the trial. So in a letter dated October 10th, 1983, Elaine Samuels, who was the deputy medical examiner who did the autopsy on Christine Schultz on the morning of the murder, wrote the following. So it says, quote, I am disturbed by certain irregularities which I have noted in the death investigation and in the subsequent trial. And she goes on and she does a bullet point of just tearing apart what the prosecutors did and what the police did. She says, one, although the death occurred at about 2.15 a.m. and the police arrived at the scene at about 2.30 a.m., the medical examiner's office was not notified of the death and called to the scene until about 4 a.m. Two, by the time the medical examiner field investigator arrived at the Schultz house, the scene had already been processed. The body had been wrapped in plastic sheets and had been trussed for removal. This is the first and only case so treated during my years that I have been affiliated with the Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's Office. In the process of wrapping the body and of placing paper bags over the, over the deceased hands, the ligature which had originally bound the hands together apparently had been partially untied and thus possibly destroying evidence. When the field investigator arrived at the scene, the police officers told him to take the rat body and to leave. He was prevented from engaging in any sort of independent investigation of the scene in two ways. The general antagonism of the police officers towards him, and the scene had been substantially altered by moving the body, stripping the sheets off the bed, and other activities of the police prior to her arrival. And she goes on and on and on and on and on about just blowing the police apart. And then she comes to the to the hairs. And it says, The police may have found blonde and or red hairs on the body prior to wrapping it, or such hairs may have been collected from Christine Schultz's house. But no such hairs accompanied the body into the Milwaukee County morgue, and no such hairs were recovered by me prior to or during the autopsy. I do not like to suggest that evidence was altered in any way, but I can find no logical explanation for what amounts to a mysterious appearance of blonde hair in an envelope which contained no such hair at the time that it was sealed by me. So this is the medical examiner who conducted the autopsy of Christine Schultz saying two years later that there is a massive disconnect between her report and what was reported by prosecutors and presented at trial. And this again is thrown out to the public by Frank Morocco. Due to all this, the state of Wisconsin did agree to do a John Doe investigation where they would look, basically do an investigation of the investigation into the murder of Christine Schultz and see if any improprieties took place. This is August of 1991. Now, it was a 10-month investigation, so they did, you know, I, would, I think they did their due diligence on this. Now, during this investigation, Chasley Irwin, the Milwaukee County medical examiner, remember Elaine Samuels was the deputy medical examiner, Dr. Chasley Irwin, the medical examiner, in a sworn affidavit stated that the bullet recovered from Christine's body during the autopsy was intact and initialed with three letters by Elaine Samuels. But the bullet apparently presented at trial was deformed 
and initialed with six letters. It's a different bullet. Quote, the state crime lab reported described a deformed bullet and initials that are not the same. I have to say it is a principal discrepancy. Irwin said he understood the bullet was taken to the state crime lab after the Schultz autopsy and wound up eventually in police custody. Now, it ends up in police custody. The police officer whose custody it was in was a guy by the name of Frank Cole, who was one of the lead homicide detectives on this case. Who was their star witness in this case? Judy Zess. Credible. Who was Judy Zess sleeping with during this time while her bodybuilder husband was in the clink? Frank Cole. <laughs> it's a sordid web, dude. Yeah. It's a sordid web, and it all smells to high heaven. And nobody's got any loyalty or scruples or ethics whatsoever. Irwin also said, again, this is the medical examiner of Milwaukee in the John Doe investigation. Irwin also said the gun police said was the murder weapon could not have been used to kill Schultz. Quote, the examination of the gun showed no evidence of blood or tissue in the barrel. In a contact wound, that's not the sort of thing one would accept. There's always some blowback with material in the barrel. This had none. And as I mentioned earlier, the shot was so close that there were burn marks around the wound. It left a perfect donut-shaped impression on Christine's back, meaning that the shooter was gouging the gun into her back when they pulled the trigger. Right. Right? Now that leaves a mark. Yeah. It left a perfect donut mark on her back, which was 250% larger in size than the barrel of the off-duty revolver that was said to be the murder weapon. It was an impossibility. This is interesting. It would, however, match Fred Schultz's known service revolver he had on him that night. His on-duty gun. Which also, in preliminary tests, was shown to have blood on it on the night of the murder, but for some reason was never tested any further. Isn't that interesting? Now the gun evidence is gone. Right. Every piece of evidence used to convict Lori Bimbenek was bullshit. All of it. There's nothing left. There's nothing left. The jury said after the trial that if it wasn't for the gun evidence that they had nothing, even with all the circumstantial evidence that they had. And what you said, Mickey, the judge had had later said that this was the most circumstantial case he'd ever seen. Without the gun evidence, they're done. The ballistics is what convinced him that it was true. And that's blown out of the water. It's gone. Right, right. Now, conventional wisdom now is that Judy Zess lied about all this to try to get a better deal for her boyfriend, or I should say her husband, Tom Gartner, the drug runner, so she could try to get him released earlier. Well, that's nice they got married in the meantime. Right. Now, eventually, she is extradited back here. International law between the U.S. and Canada says that when extradition is requested, it must be granted. So she comes back to Wisconsin because they requested that extradition, knowing that it was probably likely that she was going to win her refugee case because Frank Morocco and Ira Robbins blew the prosecutor's case out of the water. It's gone. They had nothing connecting her to this crime at all. Now, the John Doe investigation did conclude that there was no grand conspiracy by the Milwaukee Police Department, but that there were just too many evidentiary mistakes and they could not uphold the first-degree murder of conviction. But they also didn't want to give her a new trial. Right. Because if they give her a new trial, what happens? She's she's let off, and now they have an open murder on their case. Right. And, and they look even dumber than they've already been shown. So they cut her a deal. On now, December 9th, 1992, at the end of the trial, Milwaukee County DA's office made her the offer. So they offered her, she pleads no contest to second-degree murder. They'll give her a sentence of 20 years and grant it as time served, and she'll be free. With 10 years probation. And she took it. And this, at this point, she'd served 10 years, as Scott mentioned, and she took the deal after serving seven months in solitary the second time she was captured. Imagine that. She gets extradited back here seven months in solitary. Now, I think that that might be a little rough. I've also seen that. I've also heard refer to that as segregation. So I don't necessarily think it was solitary in a a kind of a little cell that we think it is. I don't know. I can't speak for what it was. But maybe even for protection of her almost. Sure. 
that that had to have something to do with but it. But it's still when you're all by yourself in a dark room, it drives whether it's right, and people who may already have issues are probably going to go, and this will come up later. But you know, here's here's the thing that infuriates me about this shit is this is this is this double deal shit. They know she didn't commit that murder. And Everybody knows she didn't commit that murder. But they still want her they, to admit to it. And they don't and so they have a solved case on their hands which is right. not solved. Right. And if if you're an officer, if you're anybody in that department, don't you isn't the whole reason you get into law so that you can find the truth and here they are just nope, this is what we said was the truth. We're just going to stick with that. Yeah, that's it's frustrating and it's disgusting because it happens more than in just this case. Now again, I don't normally disagree with a jury conviction i would believe in our jury system we get it right 98 percent of the time of course you're going to have the ones there's innocent people convicted there's people let off who did it there's going to be your mistakes that's a pretty high number i don't doubt it i think that in our jury system what the jury hears the jury makes the correct call on and this wouldn't this would include this what the jury heard sure the jury made the correct They're call. Just, right, and I believe the majority of the time they probably get the right case scenario, but I don't know that it's 98%. This was a clear, if, if, if you don't call this a miscarriage of justice, what do you call this? Right. So, and now, and again, now. Yeah, wait, do you think it was due to incompetence, or do you think it was just, we need someone to pin this know, on? I think, you know, it's hard for me to say that, that it was, she was framed by the Milwaukee Police Department, but she was clearly framed by people within the Milwaukee Police Department. We need to find someone to blame this on. Oh, we'll pick you. And she was not well-liked because of the stuff that she did, the litigation that she did. Trying to go against the department. So, you know. It all came together in perfect storm. The question question goes to then, well, if she didn't do it, who did it? And I don't think we have to look far outside that circle to see who did it. Right. So Frederick Hornberger, a former boyfriend of Judy Zess, Go figure. As well as a convicted murderer, he shot and killed somebody in a bar years prior to any of this happening. He's a career thug, right? He was he served time for that murder, and he was eventually let out and, and continued his life of robberies and thuggery. So three weeks after Christine's death, when after Christine is murdered in her home, Judy Zess's home is also broken into. That's kind of odd. Her home was broken into and was robbed. She was beaten. The intruder wore a red wig and a green canvas army jacket. Sounds familiar. Where have I heard that before? The intruder was Fred Hornberger. Again, her ex-boyfriend. Ex-boyfriend, who you would think would know you pretty well. And worked with Fred Schultz on a remodeling project previously. Right, right. So Hornberger knew these people. Goes to prison for that crime. He goes to prison for what he did to Judy Zess. Ten years. Convicted and sentenced to ten years. And while he's in prison, eight different convicts, eight different people in prison stated that Hornberger confessed to them that he did kill Christine. Bragging about it. And Fred Schultz paid him $10,000 to do it. Lori's team got sworn affidavits from all eight of these convicts. But the police said, of course... That their testimony from those that the testimony from those convicts isn't credible, and isn't that interesting? Because we've talked about plenty of cases in which they tried to convict people and have convicted people on testimony from convicts that apparently in those situations they are credible. So when he got out of prison for that crime for beating and robbing his ex-girlfriend in in, in Judy's ass several days after Christine was murdered. Police come onto the scene in where he is attempting an armed robbery at a bakery in Milwaukee. It was also a hostage situation. And in that situation, he turns the gun on himself and he kills himself. He commits suicide. Still having claimed to anyone who asked that he never never, shot Christine. Never publicly admitted to this uh, murder, although obviously there are sworn affidavits that said that he did confess to it to numerous people. Behind closed doors. Yeah. Now, Fred Schultz always denied knowing him. But as Mickey said, we know that's not true. They had where there's numerous people that have said that those two worked together on restoration projects. Fred was, Fred Hornberger was some kind of an artist. I think he made like stained glass or something. And he worked with Fred Schultz on the various restoration projects. 
they knew each other. But now Lori's free, right? She takes the no, the no contest deal, and she says that she takes this because, so, you know, she's asked, why, if you didn't really do it, why do you take this? Why do you take this plea? Well, you know, right, I think that if she, if she would have waited a little longer, she, she actually took that deal without knowing the gun evidence, without knowing that they did do ballistic testing again recently. She thought that that evidence was still in place as it was originally mm-hmm. and that it was insurmountable. So she thought, okay, they're basically giving me a chance to be free even if I'm on parole, and this, I have to be free in order to prove my innocence. So that was her mentality at the time she took the deal. So, but much more recently, ballistic testing had been done on that gun again, where they used the actual off-duty weapon, which had already been debunked by the medical examiner. But they did further ballistic testing where they actually put a bullet in the gun and fired the gun. And it was beyond a shadow of a doubt, not the murder weapon. So she takes the no contest deal, not knowing that. Again, if, if she would have waited a little longer, if she would have known that, maybe she would have demanded a new trial. But, you know, then again, you're going to trial, you're always running the risk of maybe, you don't know who's going to be on that jury. Right. Oh, you you playboy skank, I right. don't like you. They, they, you know? they don't like her. Well, yeah, of course. They could be corrupt. And she just wants it to be done. She wants to be out of prison. As a result of trying to distance herself from all this stuff, she actually changed legally changed her name to Lori instead of Lorencia at that point. She just wanted it to be over. So she, 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 another reason she gives is because her parents obviously were older. They were elderly now. They're in failing health, and she didn't want to be in prison while they were you know, living the last years of, of their life. So to be closer to them. She moves. You know, oh, sorry. Go she ahead. asked for a transfer during her parole to Washington State. So, as Scott mentioned, she could be closer to her retired parents who were living in Vancouver, and the request was approved. So she's just going to go quietly out to the sunset here, right? She's just going to. Right. Go, Sounds like her. You have your freedom. This horrible story, in regards to your life, is over. A lot of other people are still hurting. A lot of other people's lives are still wrecked. There's a dead woman here yet. But in regards to your life, you're free. Go away. Right. No. She doesn't. She goes on every talk show she could get on. To the dismay of her legal counsel. You know, there's probably, she's probably trying to get money from this. You know, you sure I'll do an appearance on your show. Everybody knows who I am whatever, anyway. Right? Why not bank on it? She wrote a book. She's 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 got the book to pro to to pump. So there's there's reasons for this. But you know, Jesus Christ, lady, and you know, at some point, just go away and right. live your life. You don't need the attention anymore. You got enough for fourteen lifetimes. You know, and there's there's some. You know, I've, I've read the book. There's a lot of stuff in that book that I don't think puts her in a real good light. I mean, she kind of backhands Christine a lot of it. Um, she kind of backhands the kids sometimes. So one of the things she says in, in her in her autobiography, she 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 gives some some backhanded comments, like I said, some backhanded swipes to Christine, which I don't think make her look good. And then she she writes this. It's called "Woman on Trial" by Lorencia Benbenek. Now she she writes she's talking about this is ap- this is the morning it would be the, the, the second morning after the murder so the murder happened late Wednesday night this would be Friday morning after the murder okay she writes after spending a day with Fred's parents we took Sean and Shannon home to the apartment which was filled with cartons the boys seemed fine to my surprise chattering about the murder as if it were nothing more than a television cops and robbers show. Does anybody believe that? Right. Anybody believe that? These kids are two days away from having the worst night of their life where they saw their mom get fucking murdered, and you're going to talk about them talking like it was a TV show? Well, and there was a lot of accounts where I read that she was adamant about never wanting to have children, never wanting to be the stay-at-home mother and all That's that. That's all over this book. Right. Yes. She. I mean, and, and she, she's adamant about it herself, obviously, that whether people were saying it about her or she said it herself, she did not have that maternal instinct going on. 
I don't think the book does her very well. I think it was a bad idea for her to write it. I certainly think that she should have had somebody on her team edit that. She talks about going into Christine's house after the murder, and they talk about how it smelled like dog piss, and it was a wreck, and it was dirty, and there were dirty... Like, what are you doing? And why... What are you fucking... I mean, she's clearly disparaging her. Right. Which, which just makes you almost look guilty again all over even though it's all kind of been shown that i don't i don't think she's guilty right and and why are you saying that stuff afterwards but she i don't like her right you know know, i'll I'll put it i'll put it that that way but anyways back to this she goes on all the these she does oprah diane sawyer you know she's all over the place she's trying to pump a book she's telling her story there's movies about about her Tatum O'Neill, I think, plays a right. plays. I've got a list of that stuff. I'll go over later. Now, you know, in two thousand two, obviously DNA now is much more prevalent than it was when this happened in the early eighties. So her team, Ira Robbins, uh, wants to conduct DNA testing. Now, of course, Milwaukee PD doesn't want to do it. Right? This is a solved case, as far as they're concerned. You, you know, are on the books as committing this murder, even though we let you out now and you're free. So they're looking to do these DNA tests, and it's going to cost about $30,000 to do these DNA tests, right? Again, Milwaukee PD is not going to pay for any of this thing. They don't want this DNA test. They have Lori. She's on the books as committing the murder. That's good enough for them, even though they know it's not true. So they they get Dr. Phil. They get Dr. Phil McGraw to put her on the show. And Dr. Phil McGraw is going to pay for the DNA testing. Now, in condition, on a condition of paying for the DNA testing, Dr. Phil said she'll be read the results of the DNA test live on his show. So they agree to this. She has to sit there and listen to it being when everybody else is hearing it also. So she's about to go on the Dr. Phil show. They fly her out to L.A. They put her up in an apartment for some reason. And they're, they put her up in an apartment, and they're like, she has to stay there, right? For a, for a day before she goes on the show. This is all really sketchy. You know, I don't know how much... There's not a lot of information about this, but for some reason, she's told that she needs to stay in an apartment for a day before she goes on the Dr. Phil show. With a bodyguard and videotaping provided. Right. Well, like, what the, what the hell? What? Well, the, what I read is they meant to shield her from media reports about her case. That's from her attorney, Mary Werher, who... Uh, was also championing her for since the early 80s. She was following her case and helping her out. So this this woman had her back, but that's what they told her, and that's what she, quote, to shield her from media reports about her case, unquote, was the reason that they put her in this apartment and videotaped and had a bodyguard. So they're videotaping her to make sure she's not watching TV about... Or that nobody's coming in and trying to... F- do whatever to her, I guess. That was that was the reason they gave, whether it's believable or not. She already knows everything about her case. I mean, I don't... I right, but I I'm know. saying, I, I think they were trying to spin it that they were protecting her from other people. It turns out this was a bad idea and it didn't work out well. So she's in this apartment by herself and she freaks the hell out. Flashing she, back they, to solitary confinement right. days. Right, and and I, I, it sounds kind of kooky what right. she did, but I, I mean, I, I see this as legit. She's in that apartment by herself. She can't leave, and she suffered right. a panic attack. She, right, for she, obvious reasons. She, she freaked out, and she tried to jump through the window. No, she didn't try. She did it. Well, she did. You're right. She jumped out the window. It wasn't like super high. It was like two stories or something, but. She broke her foot and wound up having to have the foot amputated. So from she her broke knee it down. so bad from the fall that she actually had to have it cut off. Like this was a big deal. Now, to Doctor Phil's credit, the show never ran, obviously. Right. But they still paid for the testing, which, mm-hmm. like you said, is pretty impressive. None of Lori's DNA was found on anything. No clothing. No bed sheets. No bullet. No gun. Nothing. She's not at the scene. Or she wasn't alone. Or she wasn't alone. So, But other options would be, as we mentioned, Fred Hornberger, if he was the guy, and because of possibility of sexual assault, he was likely also the killer. If it was Fred Schultz's DNA, since he had a solid alibi, it would provide more motive for Lori because it's not uncommon for people to have sexual relationships with their exes. And in this case, it would have been behind Lori's back, so she would have been... The cheated on girlfriend or wife. So 
that would make it seem like it might have been her. Or if it was someone else altogether, like a consenting sexual partner of Christine's, then this wouldn't help the case at all. But it, but it was found. It was found that Christine did have sex the night she was murdered with a male partner that night. Consensual or not, she did have sex. But was it assault that or was night. it consenting? Now, Ira Robbins also found that the crime lab that evening of the murder did find fluid on swabs right after the crime. It was not seminal fluid, right? But it's something called AP fluid, which is only produced by a male prostate. So there is male DNA found in vaginal swabs on Christine. So they do know that she did have sex that evening. Well, okay, right. Stu was there, right? right. Stu is adamant that they were not intimate for at least 10 days prior to this. Now, Ira Robbins also found that on the night of the murder, it was actually the crime lab was initially going to classify this as a sexual assault homicide. But the report saying that was never never given to the medical examiner. And the report that was given to the medical examiner said that there was no evidence of sexual assault. It was fudged. Which is the opposite report. You can find these documents online. They're there. You can find the original crime lab documents saying, the talking about the fluid found on these swabs and that it was male secretor and that they were comparing and contrasting this to other sexually violent homicides. It was going to be classified as a sexual assault homicide until somebody somewhere got a hold of that. Just more lies to cover up. You know, we had talked about the Avery case before. And I said that there, you know, obviously the, the, the parallels with this case are huge, right? Avery, the story there is that he's framed by the Manitowoc County Police Department. The story here with Lori Bembenek is that she's framed by the Milwaukee County or the Milwaukee Police Department. There's a big, big difference in one of these. The jury never heard any of this information in Lori Bembenek's case. The jury heard none of this. The jury heard bullshit testimony given to them by the prosecutors. Circumstantial evidence at best. Yeah, bullshit, bullshit circumstantial evidence. Right. It wasn't even true. Right. Even the circumstantial evidence was, was fudged. Right. In Avery's case, he didn't have a defense. His defense was, I was framed. So the jury heard all of that. Right? People watch Making Murder and they're like, oh my God, Stephen Avery needs a new trial. That was his trial. The jury heard all of it. That was his defense. I was framed by the Manitowoc County PD. The jury heard everything you saw in Making a Murderer and they rejected it. Right. That's his defense. They just didn't believe it. He was trying to say, I didn't do it. These are not the same. No. These are not the same at all. So the parallels, and this is all over the place. You go on New YouTube. You, I mean, you, you say, you know, you put in Google Bambenic and Avery and all kinds of people have done their little, uh, you know, comparisons. comparisons about these two. And, you know, this is this is proof that Avery was framed because it happened in in this case. Bullshit. They're not the same at all. And that's why you tend to believe personally that Avery is guilty and that Bambenic is not. We will we'll cover obviously Avery at some point. Obviously that's a massive story. There's so many massive there's so many big publicity murder cases in Out of Wisconsin. Wisconsin. It's just fucking amazing. We should do a podcast about all the crap here, that right? happens here. And you know, I guess I'll I'll, you know, preempt that by saying there is not an ounce of me that believes that Stephen Avery is innocent. You have been saying Nothing. that for years. Nothing. I've never watched the entirety of it because I just got tired of hearing about it, and I just didn't want to give it a chance. It was just overkill. But I started watching it before we re started recording this, and I see what you're saying, but I see what everybody else is saying. I've only watched one episode. Well, There's you, a lot you, more to watch. But. You can't. You can't just. Wa that is making a murder is very good. It's done. It's, it's so done biased. very well. Of course, it's right. propaganda. It's defense propaganda right. made by his defense team. Right. I mean, there's no prosecutorial side to that Big at all. Big word. But Ken Kratz, the prosecutor, comes out with a book soon after making a murder and blows making a murder apart. I mean, so, and say what you want about Ken Kratz. I know he, he's ethically 
Uh, I don't know. He was compromised. He, I don't know what he was doing. He was banging one of his. Uh, he got in some kind of trouble. I so don't the parallels are them. similar to. Yeah, of course, yeah. all these people are banging each other. Sure. It is what it is. Yeah. But if you can't you know, keep it in your pants, keep it in the family. We've right? we've said it on this podcast a lot of times. There's a lot of times shit people are good at their jobs, and it just is right. what it is. And they know how to cover up the shit they do. But this is not the same story as Stephen Avery. Not at all. They're not the same. The jury never heard any of this evidence. And, I mean, I'm not sure your opinion on Stephen Avery himself, but we've already kind of established that Lori Bimbenek was not necessarily the, an angel, a perfect human being, but it sure does seem like she wasn't guilty of what she was essentially framed for whether she was framed or not she was convicted of this now she had a a long slow decline right now alcoholism uh, in 2003 there was evidently a family feud over her father's estate and this is the first time that i read anything about her sister speaking up especially about her early years or their early years and more there was an interview with her sister colette bembenic they believed that she, that christine that she did not kill christine schultz but they did believe that all the drama that transformed turned a troubled woman into a sort of folk hero, as we've discussed. Quote, we were just raised differently. When Lori was born, we all danced around and accommodated the baby that lived and survived. She was raised with indulgence. It became an emotional problem. Lori has this bizarre charisma, but she needs help, unquote. Uh, this family feud would be the last time the sisters would talk to her, and it did not, th- this sister, Colette, never had a chance to speak to her before she died. In 1997, she met Mr. Marty Carson. They hit it off immediately. Sounds like a broken record. They began dating. Eventually, they would be married in 2005, but in the process of them courting each other, 1999, Carson bought a home uh, with an outbuilding that he wanted to turn into a studio because Lori had started painting, Uh, and some of her arc was the subject of an exhibition at the UW-Milwaukee in 1992. Her painting became a refuge, basically, to her to get away from the struggle of to clear her name, and just her life was hard, and whether it was her fault or not, lot of circumstantial situations that made her life very difficult when it when somebody who was considered so beautiful and had so many things going for her it just didn't turn out that way around 2001 a local art gallery did an exhibition of about 30 bimbenic paintings and (laughs) as is par for the course a freak fire burned down the entire building and she lost everything over her time with marty carson her imprisonment especially solitary left her with post-traumatic stress disorder and doctors prescribed all the antidepressants they could, but sometimes she'd go back to drinking too much as a solution, and this would all result in her having yet another failed relationship. This and Carson not being around to give her the constant attention that she needed at this point. This is just some testimony to how rough her life had become at this point. So now she's living a life of alcoholism and antidepressants, right? Right. Pretty common story when when you're talking about somebody that is dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder and i have no doubt that she was with all the shit that happened with her you know so prison time alone now she gives up caring about her appearance basically she basically you know if you look at her 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 last she's still doing interviews she's still doing interviews till her her you know close to her last days she was 52 when she she so she passes away of liver failure and kidney failure on november 20th 2010 she basically drank herself to death and stopped caring, stopped failure to thrive, I guess, is what you would call that. She also was dealing with hepatitis C. Uh, she still had not been acquitted completely, you know, completely. She, and she probably never will be. Right, and her death would greatly dim limelight shined on the case for previous three decades because now she's dead, so people aren't going to care as much. To this day, nobody has proven definitely who did it, if it wasn't her. And as Scott mentioned, it's likely to be unsolved forever. Milwaukee Police Department reports that the case is closed and says no further DNA testing will be completed. And her lawyer, as I already mentioned, Mary Wurrer and P.I. Ira Robbins, that Scott's mentioned a few times, continue to seek posthumous pardon for her to this day. Quote, we promised her dad on his deathbed that the family name would be cleared, unquote. Ira Robbins in 2008. Yeah, they're, they're still, in, here we are in 2022, they're still trying to get a pardon from Governor Evers, still today. And and look, I don't I don't disagree with that. You know, I'm, I'm fine going on record saying that I don't believe for a second that she committed this. Doesn't mean she didn't, you know, but I there's certainly, whether you believe she did or didn't, that's one thing. But there's really no way 
anybody reasonable can look at this case and say that there's not reasonable doubt here. Right. I mean, there's no possible way that this woman should have been convicted or would be convicted today in our court system. There's zero chance that she gets convicted of murder today. None. But just as more evidence to the attention monger that she had become, as you said, at some point she should have gotten out of jail and just gone and lived a normal life, but she kept seeking stardom. And here's just a list that I mentioned before I would go over. Calendar Girl Cop Killer, the Bambi Bambenic story starring Lindsay Frost in 1992. Woman on the Run, the Laurentia Bambenic story, NBC miniseries starting Tatum O'Neill, as Scott mentioned, in 1993. Headliners and Legends, which was an MSNBC television biography series starring Matt Lauer, that was in 2001. City Confidential Milwaukee, The Legend of Bambi Bambenic, an A&E Network Season 6, Episode 1 in March 27, 2002. One more two-part interview by anchor Mike Jacobs on WTMJ-TV a month before her death on October 28th and 29th, 2010. On the case with Paula Zahn, Run Bambi Run, Investigation Discovery Season 3, Episode 8, January 2nd, 2011. The Perfect Murder, Deadly Divorce, another show on Investigation Discovery Channel in 2015. Vanity Fair Confidential was Bambi Framed, Investigation Discovery, February 19, 2018. Snapped, another show on Oxygen Channel, Lori Bambenic, Season 28, Episode 12, November 11, 2020. And as Scott mentioned previously, the Run Bambi Run podcast by Apple TV Plus, which was just recently on April 11 through June 8, 2022. That's all the stuff that's been written while it was going on and, and since. So this story still doesn't go away completely. So, as we said, she she passes away on November 20th of 2010. Ira Robbins did put on a small memorial service for her in Milwaukee. About 100 people came. Um, Fred wasn't there. What? Nick Gugliotta wasn't there. Huh. Judy you know, Zess? Judy Zess is, our, is also passed on. I don't know when oh, that's she... Right. When she passed away, Mo, you know, a lot of these players are gone, right. obviously. Um, you know, it's a fascinating story. Mike Jacobs, who you mentioned in that in that list, is a, was a longtime reporter in Milwaukee, WTMJ, who covered the story pretty much from its onset. He doesn't believe that she did this. Look, there aren't many. I know of one. His name's off the top of my head. His name is, he was a, a, a reporter in Milwaukee. Um, his name is Fisher who believes still today that she did it. I don't know what he points at for that. But there are not a lot of journalists who covered the story when it happened and journalists today and researchers who go back and look at this who believe that she's guilty of this murder. Why is Fisher so invested? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't, well, he covered it. Oh, he He did. covered this throughout. But it. he's he, just convinced she he's was guilty. convinced that she did it, and I don't... Well, you get that. That's what happens. I don't There's going to be those right, people. Right, and he, and he talks about the fact that she was kicked off the police force and... Uh, you know, she was a drinker and smoked weed and so, you know, all this, all this character st- stuff that means nothing. Well, even when you and I started first researching this whole subject, your, your first impression was, why did she take the plea bargain? Right. Which, you know, yeah. I mean, and that's something that sticks to, in people, you know, as far as why, if you're not guilty, are you admitting that you are right this long but after when all the stuff's been blown clearly out of the there's water. clearly, clearly it makes sense. And, and, and again, this, it's not just our opinion that right. she didn't do this. It's most journalists most people have come to that writing about her, writing books about her, covering her. There's there's just too much shit there. Right. She didn't there's there's I don't know there's, who there's too much shit not there. Right. Right. I don't I don't know who framed her. You know, it's my assumption from looking at this the last two weeks that we have that it was likely Fred Hornberger. And I'm, Schultz may have been involved. I'm I'm less inclined to say that Fred Schultz um, was was part of it, but it wouldn't shock me if he was. I'm not. I wouldn't say beyond a doubt that he was there, but he might have been somehow involved. Well, I think if if he was involved, he he paid somebody off to do right, it. I don't, right. I don't. I don't deny. You know. I I don't. Again, it seems the most believable. Sure. You know, but but I do believe Hornberg did commit the crime. That's as far as I'm comfortable saying what happened here. I don't believe if there's anybody you can pin it on. I think you know, it's Hornberg which, 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 which makes her a vi- you know a victim as well. Right. And Mike Jacobs, you know, I think that was her last interview or one of her last interviews oh, it was. It before, was right before she died. Right. And he asked her. A month her, before she died. He asked her on a scale of one to ten, what was her life? What would she rate her life? And she said a two. Right. She said a two. 
And she had a decent upbringing and all that stuff. She just, it went off the wires when she became about 20 years old. And Think about, just think for a second if she didn't do this, which I don't believe she did. Right. What did she deserve that for? Such a hard life. What did she deserve that for? And, and again, some of the things that happened to her were brought on by her activity, like the drugs and the alcohol and all that stuff. But, sure. But for most people, that's an escape from the lives that they don't want to be part of. And, and I think that's what she was always trying to do. She was always trying to clear her name and not, look, I'm an innocent person, and yet people still look at me as a playboy bunny. Right. <laughs> And as this person who killed this woman that I maybe didn't have strong feelings for as we went over, but didn't kill. I'm not a murderer. And that would stay with you when you know damn well you didn't do it and everybody looks at you and you're famous for it. Even you can't run away from that. The, 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 all the alcohol in the world doesn't allow that. We're sitting here 12 years after she passed away. Still talking about and, it. And she's still referred to as a former Playboy. Right. Right. And Bambi. I mean, it, it, she hated both. Outlasted her life. Right. It's amazing. Now, she, she, I believe she's a victim in this right. because I don't believe she committed this crime. The, there's a real victim here, though. That's always forgotten, as we've mentioned before. We just talked for several hours about this case. And in other cases we've mentioned, the true victim is the one who was murdered. And right. that's just forgotten in the, in the trail of facts. Christine Schultz was 30 years old when she was snuffed out. With two young boys. Two boys. She's buried up here in Appleton. Shannon uh, came up here, as I said in the beginning, was raised by her sister. He graduated from Appleton West, I believe. I don't know this for a fact. It's not our place to be searching these people down to talk about these things. I believe he's still in the area. I believe he's still here. uh, Sean actually moved to Florida and is living and lived with Fred. And wound up uh, went to Florida State. Um, I don't I like know where school. I don't know where he is now. I don't know if he remains in Florida or what. But I know that after the murder, he did go live in Florida. And with, maybe he wants it that way that it's with, hard to find out with Fred. And you know, she's currently survived by her three siblings too, from everything I've understood. Christine, that is. It's not only Christine who's a victim; it's that entire family. And her parents, like you said, April twenty fourth, nineteen eighty eight. Her father Earl passed away at sixty four, but. Her mother passed away just a few years ago at the age of 92 on December 19, 2019. So she lives her last 40-some years of her life without her daughter. And wondering what happened. They all, and, and so they all, and this is this is something I'm very intrigued by, or I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about. I don't, I haven't, in the, all the research I've done, I haven't seen any quote from that family from 1991 or so when Bambi was on the lam, and they were adamant that she committed this crime. And walk in. Why wouldn't they be? That's what they're being told by the prosecutors. Right. I have not seen a quote from them about this since all of this stuff came out, that none of the stuff that that Lori uh, was convicted of was true. It was all bullshit. There is nothing that stands, nothing in any of that evidence that stands. So I don't know what they think now. I'm certain, you know, obviously they don't believe their dad had anything to do with it. Who am I to say that he did, right? I'm just a guy that's reading about this for the last two weeks. They're the victims here. Mm-hmm. Those boys had to live virtually their whole lives. Mickey and I are, are roughly the same age as them. Roughly their whole lives without their mother, not only without their mother, but seeing what happened to her. I can't imagine that. And well played. Like, this, as you said, is a well-documented story that still comes up, so they kind of got to be reminded of it all no the question time. about it. They turn on the TV, they turn on oxygen, there it is. Mm-hmm. They go in a library, there it is. They turn on, uh, you know, Lifetime channel. There's Tatum O'Neill playing, uh, you know, the, the lady that they think killed their mother. It's got to be hell. You know, but there's no justice in this in this crime. He, 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 Milwaukee PD can, can solve it and say it's solved and close the books on it all they want. There is no justice in this crime. That family is continually victimized every single day, in my opinion, that Milwaukee Police Department says this is a closed case. No, it's not. And although they're trying not to victimize that family by saying we're not going to look into anything any further, knowing that the person they put away for this is not the right killer, is victimizing that family still. And we're the victims of this too. That's an unsolved crime. A mother, 30 years old, with two children, and they just wash their hands of it and say, no, 
we got our person. You don't have your person. That makes us all victims. Not just Christine Schultz, not just Lori Bimbenek. It makes us all victims. And we deserve better than that. Amen, brother. <laughs>